and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Nicole Rowan, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. And the end of the front fringe benefits tax financial year is coming up, 31 March 2022. So we thought it was time to review the obligations of employers when they provide fringe benefits to their employees. To help me with this tax episode, and can I say when it comes to FBT, I do need a little bit of help. I'm very fortunate to be joined by a couple of tax specialists, Michael Carruthers from Knowledge Shop and Leanne Hayes from Tax Banter. So Michael is an advisor, author, in-demand presenter, mentor to Knowledge Shop's technical team, and is well known for his capacity to translate highly technical information into tangible and usable advice for the profession. He has a knack for seeing through the complexity and helping advisors work through highly technical issues with certainty and accuracy. He's a member of the advisory panel for the Board of Taxation and is a member of the reference group for the Board's review of small business concessions. He was also an expert panel for the Board's review of tax impediments facing small business. And Leanne Hayes brings over 19 years of tax training experience and is well regarded as an enthusiastic, approachable and engaging presenter and can I say colleague as well. Her strong tax technical knowledge was developed at the Australian Taxation Office where she held various technical audit and training roles. Lee's passion for tax training began in 2001 after joining Webb Martin Training and continues on at Tax Banter. From this time, Lee has continued delivering tax technical training sessions for various providers, including boutique training organisations and professional associations. I know that what we'll get from Lee today will be evidence of her strong technical knowledge and enthusiastic training style that she brings to all tax banter training sessions. Michael and Lee, thanks for joining us and welcome to Tax Yak. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be back. It's been a while. <laughs> Good to have you back. So fringe benefits tax. Why do we have fringe benefits tax? Lee, can you help me out with that one? Yeah, look, um, obviously it came in what mid-1980s and it's all about taxing those benefits given to employees. Um, in lieu of getting cash, salary and wages, we're going to tax the benefits that would otherwise be provided. Now, the regime's kind of established to make it from the employer's perspective no different to me giving you $1,000 after cash to spend on whatever you spend on or giving you the benefit worth $1,000 after tax, which is why we have all those complicated gross-up rules and those sorts of things in there. But it's so all was about it just making to fix it from... a problem? Was, was there an issue that people were yeah. actually providing benefits rather than providing wages, which has no. a lot of obligations? No, not, no one went out to dinner and just charged it back to the firm in the 80s. That never happened. <laughs> Obviously, it was a very specific, um, very specific tax to target a very specific program, which is what old practice, I should say, which is why I always find it interesting when you get those reports and things that say, oh, fringe benefit tax, it, it doesn't collect any tax, but it costs all this money to administer. To me, that means it's doing its job. <laughs> what does it capture then? What, what um, if it's not collecting much tax, but it's costing, you know, resources and time and management? What is it actually, how was it addressing that? How does the tax actually have that outcome or the existence of the tax create that outcome? 
Um, well, I think it, in many cases, a lot of businesses would structure their affairs so that they don't end up with a tax on FBT liability. Um, and sometimes that'll be done through employees actually basically paying for the benefits they're receiving, which again, kind of goes back to if they were just paying for the benefit themselves in the first place, then we're kind of back where we started. Um, so a lot of businesses- You're talking about the employee contribution there, Mark? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And for example, like cars are pretty still pretty common benefits that you see. And a lot of businesses would just make sure that across the course of the year, they structure things so that sufficient employee contributions are being made, uh, basically to make sure that that doesn't end up being dealt with in the FPT system. But if the FPT system mm -hmm. wasn't there, then people would be getting cars for free, basically. So it kind of does its job in some ways, arguably, um, just in a bit of a roundabout way. Mm, okay. Absolutely. So the employer mm. obligations, what are they, Lee? Kind of, what's well, the first thing yeah, the employer needs to consider? Well, if um, I think it's actually really interesting. If you actually look at what is a fringe benefit, it's everything. You go to your tea room down the hall here and have your cup of coffee and your biscuit, that's a benefit. Now, obviously, we're not paying SBT on that. So it's all about when you have a liability to pay SBT. As soon as there's a dollar of SBT payable, that's when you need to be um, lodging an SBT return and um, registered, engaged in the system and all of those sorts of things as well. Um, obviously, you can choose to lodge an SBT return. And there's a couple of reasons why I think an employer might want to do that. Um, certainly from uh, uh, FBT is a full self-assessing tax. So the moment you lodge your FBT return, that's an assessment. So that starts your clock. So there's a three-year amendment period with FBT and it starts from lodging the return. You don't lodge a return. A return not necessary is not a return. You don't lodge a return. You don't start that clock. The other just thing, just want to come back to that is, again. Um, so if you, yeah, you notify the ATO, that a return's not necessary. And it might be because, um, coming back to your point, Mike, that you've provided a car benefit, but the employee has made their contribution. So you've you've included that, for example, in the company tax return. Are you saying that if you notify the ATO that a return's not necessary, that doesn't equate to the lodging of the return? And so therefore the period of review clock doesn't start ticking? Yeah, technically that's right. So um, I guess that's just your, your risk versus benefit. Um, is it worth lodging an FBT nil return? Um, the problem I have with people and their cars, and, and be interesting to see what Mike's got to say about that as well, is that it's still a lot of work, even if there's no tax payable. You've still got to fill in all those little boxes and that's sort of, I don't know, something that people have a little bit of a resistance to do. Um, but still, if you haven't started the clock, is, is that a risk factor and, and is that something you should be weighing up? The other one, of course, is making choices. Um, like with all taxes, your tax return is evidence of your choice. So without the lodgement of return, have you in fact made the choice? And when I think about the car benefits, I'm thinking the logbook method, um, the operating cost there requires you to choose to use that. Otherwise, the statutory formula is the default. So if you haven't lodged your tax return, have you technically made that choice? Now, look, the tax office stands behind everything in all of their publications. And my favourite publication is that Employer's Guide to FBT. I actually looked at it this morning. It's 200 and something pages. Fantastic. In that, the tax office says your work papers can be evidence of that choice. But if you end up in the AAT, are they going to stand behind that? And technically, you haven't made the choice if you haven't lodged your tax return. All right, I'll be saying then that it is best once you've done all that work, once you've identified the amount of the employee contribution that needs to be made and reported in you know the business's 
tax return that you might may as well just actually lodge that NIL FBT return to start that period of review clock ticking? Um, I think it probably uh, depends on the risk appetite of the client. I don't know what you're seeing, yep. Mike. What, what... Um, yeah, look, I think a lot of people, again, if I think about kind of small business world, um, you know, the thought of lodging an extra thing with the ATO when you don't really need to, um, it, that doesn't excite too Not many people. Um, yep. So no. look, it, it doesn't. But look, having said that, um, you know, maybe should people give some thought to that? I, I think it's worth turning your mind to it. And I think a lot of people make that decision without realising it's a decision to make. Um, I think a lot of people would just assume that well, I don't have an FBT liability, I'll just lodge a return not necessary or do nothing. And yep. why should it matter either way? Um, and I think if people knew that it could actually have an impact on them in the next two, three years, um, yep. maybe they would make a different decision, particularly if it wasn't that onerous to just fill out a yeah. new form and with a few details on it, obviously, and submit that in. So I, I, don't, I don't think that's a bad conversation to people to have with their clients, um, just so they know. And again, I think as advisors, you just want clients to be making an informed decision. If mm. they decide to go one way or the other, so be it. But as long as they know what, what they're weighing up. Yeah. And I certainly warn clients, the tax office knows the company owns the car, for example. They do data matching with all of those road transport authorities yeah. across the country. So they know the car's owned by an entity. So if they're not seeing a return not necessary, a recipient's contribution in the tax return or the SVT return, you will get a please explain. So just, again, your appetite for risk. So there's enough information there for the ATO to, to do some data matching and raise a red flag, for example. Existence of a car, an ownership of a car by that company via the um, motor vehicle registration and absence of an employee contribution amount. They can match yep. that and see risk. Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then if the, you know, the accountants, our clients have this obligation to get some information from their employers. Now, I assume going to an employer who might be an absolute, you know, person that truly understands the hospitality industry you know, really knows the right client, the right staff to get, the right chef, really knows food, how to be, build a fantastic cafe. But if you say to them, have you provided any fringe benefits, will they know what you're talking about? So what's, what's important to consider when our accountants are reaching out to their clients and asking for information for the purposes of pre preparing their fringe benefits tax returns? Well, yeah, I don't think that's a very good question to ask because I think lots of the time the answer will be no, I don't provide any fringe benefits. Um, so yeah, you do need to be quite careful in the questions that you're asking. And I think they do need to be a little bit more targeted and specific. Um, so do you ever let an employee use a vehicle or a car? Do you ever take your employees out to lunch? Do you ever put on a Christmas party or an end of month drinks? Yeah, they need to be quite specific questions because the term fringe benefits would mean different things to different people and those without a tax background would yeah, answer that question differently. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, once people understand the breadth of the system and as Leanne said earlier, kind of there's fringe benefits being triggered all the time, um, mm -hmm. pretty much every business is providing a fringe benefit. So that is not a very, it's not a very good question to ask. We do need to be a little bit more targeted. I don't know if you've got any other kind of good questions to ask Leanne in terms of kicking off that conversation. 
No, but I think that a practitioner could look to the financials. I mean, if you are looking at the financials and you're seeing, well, it, it, it should be recorded as meals, but maybe it's recorded as station. No, I'm joking. Um, I'm being a bit cheeky there. But look to the financials. Um, as I said, if there's a, a company that has car expenses, well, the company itself is not driving that car. So someone is. Who is it? What car is it? And they're the questions you ask. Um, what type of vehicle is this? Is it? Is it? meeting the definition of a car? Um, is it garaged at the um, uh, workplace overnight? So those sorts of questions. Um, if you know the address and you're looking at the address that it's in a sort of CBD or, or even a suburban location, is there a commercial car park? What's the turnover? Is this now we have to turn our mind to the car parking fringe benefits? The good news is I think with car parking, and I'm sure we'll get to that, um, the threshold has been increased. So that risk is a lot less than what it was um, a few years ago, but certainly it's a question that, that has come up in the past. Um, you know, you, you see um, paying expenses on behalf of the employees. It's probably something as simple as a, a professional membership or something, but have you got the otherwise deductible declaration? We know FBT is heavy on the declarations. We need to have that in place technically in order to fit within those exemptions. So, Lee, you've referred already to a number of different types of benefits. Perhaps we could just focus on the fact that there are actually categories of fringe benefits, that they're defined in a particular order in the legislation, and that my understanding is that one of the really important um, uh, bits of work, process of work that the accountant needs to go through is properly allocate the different types of fringe benefits to the correct category, because each category has different exemptions and concessions. So can you just talk a bit to that? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I stress in every time, every delivery of an SBT session is your starting point is the taxable value of the um, benefit. And each category, so there's 12 different categories, has its own valuation rules. So you start off with, I think cars, are, well, not think car is the first one, and then you sort of cascade down through them. So if you're paying for, um, say, fuel for an, or, or provide paying expenses to do with the car, I guess technically that could fit into an expense payment category, but car is there earlier, so you would um, in the list of, of um, benefits, so you apply that those valuation rules first. And identifying the category of benefit, as I said, is just so critical because the cars are concessionally taxed, whereas an expense payment's not. Um, expense payment has an otherwise deductible rule, car benefits don't. So understanding which benefit you fall within. So some of them are pretty obscure and I would be surprised if um, many people encounter them, things such as um, board fringe benefits and things like that. You sort of cascade down through them. Meal entertainment is obviously there as, a, as its own benefit. Um, you've got then right down the bottom, you're heading towards things such as um, expense payment, property. And my favourite is residual. Just if it doesn't fit anywhere else, it's just being whacked into <laughs> this last category there. And that's where a lot of really quirky exemptions are. So let's just talk about some of those common fringe benefits then. You've already referred a couple of times to car fringe benefits. One of the points you made was that there's a couple of ways of calculating, I think, your taxable value. Yeah, absolutely. So look, I think the thing to note with your cars is um, it, a fringe benefit arises if the car is available for private use or if it's taken to be available for private use. So there's not a case of the employee just going, oh, I never use it privately, so I don't need to worry about it. If the car's garaged at their residence overnight, there you go, you've got a car fringe benefit at or near their residence. But if it is only being used for business um, purposes, well, that's when you would elect to do the operating cost or the logbook method because you might find that you have 100% business use depending on, on the use of the employee's um, car there. So um, you have to elect to use the logbook. Um, obviously, it's just like a car log, logbook. You've got a lot more um, 
um, compliance associated with that. Um, I think most people, and I'm sure Mike will agree with me, use the statutory formula. Um, certainly that is my experience, hands down. Um, I think it's just easier. <laughs> um, both have exemptions, so there's some common exemptions available to both methods, um, and that's probably the ute. We all hear the ute exempt from FBT. Of course it is. It's just no tax to be paid. The car dealer told me that. Isn't, isn't that right? <laughs> is that right? <laughs> is the ute again. completely exempt? Yeah, and if you've got um, decals on the side, like the business sign writing, it's also exempt from tax as well. And please don't, <laughs> don't try this at home, people. It's a joke. <laughs> So the ute, um, the um, uh, panel van, or a car not principally designed for carrying passengers is all exempt from FBT, but only with respect to home-to-work travel and any other private use that's minor, infrequent and irregular. And I keep reminding people, if that car's your daily ride, it is not going to be exempt from FBT, even if it is a ute. Um, probably the other thing I think with the cars and that exemption is the difference between having the carrying capacity of less than one tonne or more than one tonne. As soon as the vehicle has a carrying capacity of more than one tonne, it's actually a residual fringe benefit. So firstly, that impacts your ability to use the statutory formula. That's gone. It's a cents per kilometre or it's a logbook. Um, the other way that that exemption that I just went through applies is that you don't have the restriction that the vehicle doesn't have to be principally designed for carrying passengers. So as long as it sort of fits, as long as it's got the carrying capacity of more than one tonnes and a residual benefit, you can potentially fit within that exemption. But again, Just if it's a daily to, ride. Yeah, okay. I think you were about to mention it. If we've got a vehicle that is more than one tonne, again, I think there's an assumption uh, that it's not subject to FBT, but you're saying that if it's more than one tonne, of course, it's not no longer a car. It pushes it from the top mm. of the categories down to the bottom of the categories to a residual benefit. And again, private use is going to be caught unless it's home to work, minor, infrequent and irregular. But the ATO has a very, very clear view on, on that travel. And it's in a PCG. Is it 2018 number? Okay, so it's PCG 2018-3, where the ATO has a view on minor, infrequent and irregular travel. What's that view? Doesn't happen too often. <laughs> <laughs> So, so if I take someone in, in Melbourne, for example, that has that um, more than one tonne ute and they pop, uh, you know, it's Easter time, they pop down to the Murray River, you know, it's just one, one trip for the year. Are we still within the ATO's view and do, are we still exempt or has our private use gone beyond the ATO's view? Well, just before we go too far, <laughs> this is just a... In effect, and I don't know whether it's the right word to use safe harbour, but this is the ATO saying if you kind of stay under this kind of level of usage, we're pretty much probably going to leave you alone as, you, as long as you've got some records to kind of show it. Um, so I think it's important to recognise that if you go above what the ATO says in the PCG, it doesn't actually mean the exemption doesn't apply, mm -hmm. but you are certainly, yeah, you're a higher risk and you're, your level of expectation around record keeping is higher as well. Um, but basically what the ATO says is if, if you've got one of these kind of work vehicles, like a, a ute that can carry more than a tonne, um, when it comes to the private trips, and there, there will almost always be some purely private trips, um, as long as the private trips don't exceed thousand kilometres in total across the FBT year and no single return journey exceeds 200 kilometres, then they'll probably leave you alone. 
So the total, really the total private usage for the whole year has to be within 1,000 kilometres yep. and no one single return trip can be greater than 200 kilometres. So my yes. example of the Melbourne resident travelling to the Murray River for the week, Easter week, long weekend, would exceed that second part. It would be greater than 200 kilometres. I will take your word for it on the geography, given <laughs> okay, that yep. I'm not based in <laughs> but if that return journey is more than 200 kilometres, then, yeah, you're automatically outside the scope of that PCG. Mm -hmm. um, again, that doesn't automatically mean you don't have an exempt vehicle, um, but it does mean the level of risk is higher than it would otherwise be. Um, and I think, yeah, you, you, you're probably pushing it a bit. Um, and certainly you want to be pretty careful before just taking the view that that's an exempt vehicle. Um, so how, how do we manage that? If, if we're an accountant, we've got clients that we know have an expectation that the employee is going to use that vehicle for private purposes. How do, can it be managed? How can they advise their employer clients to manage that then? Um, so I think the first step is just having a think about, is there any likelihood that the exemption would apply? Um, because it might be pretty obvious in some cases that it's, it's not really even on the cards because of typical usage. And it might be just some kind of basic questions to try and find out how does this thing really get used and what sort of records are being kept around that. So it might be, might be something that could still qualify for the exemption. If so, it would be a matter of pointing out kind of what expectations are because there are still some records that should be kept to justify that that exemption is available. It's not just a freebie. You've got to be able to back it up. Um, unless it's very clear that the exemption is available, but even if it, you thought it was, um, I would have thought a really sensible thing to do from an employer point of view, because it's the employer who is directly going to be affected by this, is to either require or strongly encourage the employees who are using those vehicles to keep a logbook. Um, because if it turns out that vehicle is not completely exempt, then you're going to have to figure out a taxable value um, and again depending on the type of vehicle will determine which methods are available um, but in many cases if we're dealing with a vehicle that does do a fair bit of business travel you will often end up with a better result if you can use the operating cost method but you need a valid logbook to be able to use that at all otherwise you end up with a deemed zero percent business usage so right. so, so it's a risk having a logbook is, is central to that yeah, exactly right. So you need that logbook. You need employees to be on on top of that through the mm -hmm. year. It's not something they can really just kind of think about six months after the end of the FBT year and kind of put together. Um, it, it should be just something that's done as a bit of a, a bit of a backup because that exemption is pretty limited. And if you don't get it, you could end up with a pretty hefty FBT bill. But that could be managed. It could be managed down to a less hefty bill if there is a valid logbook, um, because that could significantly reduce what the FBT exposure is. Yep, great. I, th I think a bigger problem is those um, sort of more self-employed type arrangements where, mm. you know, they just try and rely on that exemption thinking that I've got the dual cab but doesn't have the cab or I've got the one tonne, I don't really know my vehicles very well, but my dentist drives one. Um, <laughs> and um, I just think that, that that people just think, oh, it's an automatic exemption. And I think the practitioner just needs to really, really remind their clients mm. that it is not an automatic um, exemption and there is a risk how big that risk is I guess you know you hear all sorts of rumors of how how understaffed the FBT area is in the tax office but mm. is that a risk you're willing to take 
Mm, yes, because I'm sure that would be quite easy for the ATO to get enough information to, to and do it, you know, reasonable amounts of data matching to actually identify where those risks sit with very specifically. Mm. Mm. Yep. Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd tell people just get the, all you need is those odometer records, start of the year, end of the mm. year, work out how far your house is from the office and the, the balance is your private use. Is that mm. minor, infrequent and irregular? Yes, and if you're talking tens of thousands of case, clearly not minor, infrequent or irregular. <laughs> okay, so let's move on from cars. And Michael, just um, have a quick chat about managing travel costs, which is kind of tied up in, in you know, the, the usage of cars as well. Again, we have some recent ATO guidance. I think we're talking about tax ruling 2021 number one. Could you talk about about um that as a, a fringe benefit and how we best need to manage that yeah sure um yeah this is an area where there have been some developments over recent years um and the ATO has finalized a, two or three things in the last the last year or so so a couple of rulings and a, another pcg as well um and i think this is a i, I find this anyway a really difficult area to deal with in practice this whole whether it's from a deduction point of view or an fbt point of view um I find this like this is a difficult area. I really dislike Agreed. the questions that come really up in this area. Um, <laughs> so there are the basics, but it it's very easy to move beyond basics. And I think that's again something just for practitioners, particularly, to keep in mind that this gets going to be a really difficult area, and it needs careful attention placed on it. So when it comes to FBT system, there's some really fundamental questions that we normally start by looking at. So first of all. Are we deal, dealing with someone who's traveling in the course of their work? Are they living away from home in order to perform their work? Or maybe are they relocating? Are they completely moving somewhere else on a more permanent basis? And the answer to that or those questions will then lead you down a certain path in terms of how the tax treatment is going to look. Um, for example, the FBT rules, if someone's traveling overnight for work, it may well be possible to apply an otherwise deductible rule and to get rid of a lot of the FBT issues that might be associated with that travel. If the individual is living away from home, there are some concessions and some exemptions that apply, but those have been tightened up a fair bit in over the years. Um, so it's more difficult to qualify. Again, there's records that need to be kept um, and there are some limits on how long those concessions can apply for. Um, when someone's relocating, um, Otherwise, deductible rule is not going to be very relevant to you, but there are a long, long list of potential concessions and exemptions that can apply. Um, also, when someone's living away from home, um, and it's a matter of really kind of working through that long list of concessions and exemptions. Um, some people get lots of those, some people don't. Um, it, it can be quite a complex area. Um, having said that, on the other side, there's also the opportunity for some quite nice tax planning to be done um, when people are aware of those concessions and uh, are thinking ahead of, of the time. So whether um, employees are living away from home or relocating, um, it is worth thinking about it in advance because the FBT system does have a whole bunch of concessions that are built into them. Um, and some employees can end up you know, a fair bit better off by packaging up some of those costs in, a, in an effective way. So yeah, it's a tricky area. The ATO's recent guidance um, to some extent, kind of updates you know, some of the key issues around when someone might be traveling or living away from home. Again, the ATO has a, I guess, for want of a better term, a safe harbor approach in terms of 
trying to determine whether someone is in fact traveling or living away from home. So there's quite a lot that's gone on in that space recently. Um, and for anyone who hasn't really delved into the detail of that over the last little while, right now would be a good time to start doing that because there's, there's a bit to get your head across. Summarize the first and perhaps most important question is to ask, is that, is someone, sorry about that, is someone traveling? Is someone living away from home or is someone relocating that in terms of the employee? That's probably the first question. And that will, the answer to that will lead you down a different pathway, but all of them involve consideration of fringe benefits tax. And then of course, all of them have different concessions and exemptions and so forth that apply. Correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I agree. This one about relocating is really interesting because I'm not sure that relocating and the costs of relocating is ever deductible to the employee. But in the Fringe Benefits Tax Assessment Act, there's quite a lot of concessions for the employer meeting those relocation costs and, and a range of costs that are incurred by an individual on re relocation, including you know buying a new property and so forth. So it seems to be really imp important and as you say, um, opportune time to do some tax planning with the employer. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, if you think about just one example of that stamp duty on buying a new home. So if you're moving from Melbourne to Sydney for work, relocating, and you're not, not travelling, you're not living away from home, this is a more permanent move, um, and you're thinking about buying in Sydney, um, the stamp duty cost on purchase of the property right now, regardless of what you buy and where, that's, that's going to be a big number. And if you pay that out of your own pocket mm. as an employee, you're not getting a deduction for that. Um, might help you pay a bit less tax later, although if it's your main residence, it probably ends up being a wasted cost from a tax point of view. Yeah. Um, but if that can be packaged up on a proactive basis, um, that can be a really significant after-tax saving to an employee. Just, just you know, that one cost is one example. Anything to add to that, Lee? No, I agree. Um, yeah, there's just the, the back of that SBT Act is just sort of scattered with all of these quirky little exemptions that, yeah, unless you're, you're onto it, you probably don't mm -hmm. even know. Stamp duty yep. is a fantastic example. Well, let's then um, if, leave. I can ask you about the car parking benefit. My understanding is that the ATO has changed their interpretation to bring in more um, circumstances where an employer will be providing a car parking benefit, but the government has actually changed the threshold, which will put, put more people out of having a FBT liability. So could we just qu quickly summarise that? Because I think we're ending up with, the result is less and less people are going to have a car parking yeah. fringe benefit liability. Yeah, it's actually funny. Had we had this conversation a couple of years ago, the starting point for me was always, you know, put a, put a pin mark in the map, one kilometre radius, is there a commercial car park within that one kilometre radius? Um, and if there is, does it charge more than the FBT rate for all day parking? Well, actually, I think your first question is, do you give your employees parking? Obviously. So um, in doing that, the definition of a commercial car park was probably what we all traditionally thought of it as being sort of a place where there's a high rise car park or a commercial operator or, or, or whatever. Then um, a couple of years ago, the tax office sort of started to um, reassess what, what that particular um, uh, definition was. 
And one of the things that they, they had previously said was not a commercial car park, was one which was um, almost had a, had a different purpose than providing sort of general parking for the public if it was attached to a hospital, shopping centre, school, um, your university. Um, if the pricing was designed to stop you parking all there, they all there, Oh, gosh, I said that poorly, didn't I? <laughs> if the pricing methodology was designed to, to discourage all-day parking, the tax office said that was not a commercial car park. They changed their mind. So I think about the local shopping centre near me, which might give you, I think, three hours for free, and then by the time you're there for more than about four or five hours, you're sort of above the FBT car parking rate. They're now considered to be commercial car parks. So that suddenly makes so many more employers parking potentially subject to FBT. But around the same time as that ruling got finalised, the government actually uh, extended the ability to use what's called the small business car parking exemption. And that is available for um, um, uh, employers that have an aggregated turnover of less than 50 mil. So I've now probably changed my mindset on what you would start with. And I'd probably start with your turnover. If your turnover is less than 50 mil, don't necessarily have to worry about car parking except for the fact that the small business car parking exemption has a whole heap of exemptions within it. And one of them is if the car is parked at a commercial car park. Now, with the tax officer's extended definition of what is a commercial car park, it's almost self-fulfilling, isn't it? Now we've got even more people potentially back liable because they fall without, um, outside that exemption, even though they might have been in it previously because their turnover was below 10 mil. So you've got to look at where the car's parked. So just checking... Small access to or the threshold before you actually will have a car, a, um, a fringe benefits, um, car parking benefit has been raised to 50 million, aggregated turnover of 50 million. However, the exemption itself doesn't apply if the car parking being provided is actually within a commercial car park and the definition of a commercial car park as interpreted by the ATO, has been expanded. Yeah. Yes. So you still need to understand if, if you are providing a car parking benefit because you're paying perhaps, a, you know, or paying any, uh, or paying your yes. employees car parking, whether directly where it's being provided or even mm -hmm. reimbursing it, then you're providing yes. a car parking um, be, benefit. Be very careful. It actually has to be the provision of the space. The moment you're actually reimbursing an expense, it's not a car parking fringe benefit, it's an expense payment fringe benefit and you're in okay. a different territory. Right. Okay. Exemption so doesn't you, apply. So if you're reimbursing the car parking that's being provided in a commercial car park and if it's within the one kilometre radius, you're actually not caught by the car parking fringe benefit, you're caught by an expense payment fringe benefit. Yep. Right. All right. <laughs> so many categories, so many complications. We obviously cannot cover them all here today, but that's been really helpful. Thank you. What we might go to now, Michael, is some common problems, some common mistakes that employers and even accountants might make. Yeah, look, there are quite a few things within the FBT system which trip people up quite often. Um, the one we tend to see a lot over and over again is just misunderstanding of First of all, what's the difference between salary sacrifice and an employee contribution or a recipient's payment? Um, and then secondly, what the practical implications are of those two things being different. Um, so salary sacrifice, I mean, it, it's money that you're giving up pre-tax as an employee. So you're basically, it's being deducted from your salary before it kind of gets applied or paid to you. 
Um, and so you're reducing your pre-tax salary, you're reducing the amount of tax you pay as well, personally. Um, whereas employee contributions are after tax. They're contributions you are making towards the fringe benefit that's being provided to you. Um, and it's basically coming out of your after-tax funds. Um, and I think the way we try and explain this to people, which I hope is helpful, um, tell me if it's not, because I'll come up with a different way of explaining it. Um, but salary sacrifice amounts are typically used to even things out between the employee and the employer, so that the employer isn't out of pocket effectively. So often the amount that salary sacrificed might include the, the cost to the employer of the benefit that's being provided, but also any FBT liability associated with it as well. So often they're saying to the employee, we're happy to give you this benefit as long as it doesn't cost us anything. Um, so you're going to kind of give up enough of your pre-tax salary so that we as an employer are not out of pocket. Um, so that's that's often something that's negotiated between the employee and the employer. There's no hard and fast rule about what that number needs to be. That's up for the parties to negotiate amongst themselves. Employee contributions are typically used to eliminate or manage the FBT liability from the employer's point of view. So for example, in a pretty typical scenario involving a car fringe benefit, often an employee would make sufficient after-tax contributions towards that benefit enough to get rid of the FBT liability. So you kind of work backwards, you figure out, well, what would the FBT liability be? Or what, sorry, what would the taxable value of this benefit be? Okay, we're gonna make sufficient employee contributions to get rid of that. So we don't have an FBT liability relating to this benefit. And then salary sacrifice numbers will often be used to kind of massage the difference from the employer's point of view. Um, but it, it's a bit tricky because salary sacrifice, um, you know, that's not taxable to the employer, but they're paying less salary. So there might be lower deductions to be claimed, but that might be balanced out with the, the cost of the benefit they're providing. Um, but employee contributions, depending on how they're done, um, they might be taxable to the employer. Uh, they might trigger a GST liability for the employer as well. Um, and so they'll often get picked up in other parts of the tax system. So you'll often see interaction between the FBT system the income tax system, because the employer will often be assessed on that contribution, um, and a GST liability will, will often arise in there as well. Um, and so employers and advisors who are helping employers need to make sure that those three things all fit together, because it's all fine to kind of put through an after-tax employee contribution to get rid of the FBT problem, um, but you might still have another problem if you not picking that up as income or picking up the GST liability as well. So that difference is something that does cause a lot of confusion um, amongst you know, employers, but also amongst a lot of accountants who maybe, particularly those who aren't dealing with salary packaging on a really regular basis. And a lot of people find that they don't come across it all that often. So when it does, some of these things kind of trip them up a little bit. Well, I thought that was an excellent explanation. Thank you, that really <laughs> helped me. <laughs> I might just borrow you that. You can continue for, uh, using it. <laughs> yeah, next time I'll I'm doing the FBT, um, you know, annual update. Absolutely, that was very helpful. So, Lee, any other particular mistakes, issues that you see? Um, probably, obviously, just the lodging of the return and those sorts of things we, we spoke about earlier. But um, uh, making sure one of the triggers to FBT, we sort of think about the the, the benefit provided in FBT year in respect of um, for, by an employer um, to an employee. 
in respect of employment. So that's the key thing there is that fringe benefit tax is all about taxing benefits provided in respect of employment. So it's about just um, making sure, I guess, that the benefit is provided in respect of employment as opposed to in respect of something else. And that's really only going to be the issue for those closely held employers um, uh, where you know, mum and dad own the business as well as being employed. Um, yes, just make sure that if you want to be in the FBT area, um, that it is in respect of employment. Now, I guess we've sort of spoken a little bit, bit about, do you want to be in the FBT area? And I think it probably depends on what entity type you have. Um, let's get back to the car owned by the company. Use of company assets are a payment under Division 7A. So if you have a payment occurring for Division 7A, then you need to make sure you're paying the company market value for the use of that asset. Otherwise, it's a deemed dividend. And that's based on the market value. Now, I don't know what the market value is of the use of a car 24-7, 365 days of the year, but I suspect it's more than what the FBT taxable value is. So that's where I think maybe arguing or making sure that the benefit is in respect of employment actually ends up with a better result because FBT is a lot more concessional with cars than um, Division 7A. But if the benefit's not provided in respect of employment, um, if it's provided in respect of your equity, um, what entity is it and how else is that going to end up being taxed and what consequences does that have for the entity in claiming um, deductions against providing that expense? Great. So just a reminder, I think, that if you are using an asset of another entity, uh, you know, there needs to be some accounting for that one way or another, I think, is is what your point is there. Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah. okay. It's not yours. <laughs> it's not yours. And we know that so many people struggle to actually separate themselves from assets owned by their entity, their, you know, family trust or, or the company. And, yeah. and it certainly does... Again and again, we see that come out in ATO case issues where there's that intermingling of personal and business finances and assets, and it can have some serious consequences in respect of their, their um, they can have some adverse tax outcomes, for example. All right, well, we might, um, we might start to wrap this up. I just want to ask you the question, Lee, about some promised record keeping changes. Where are we with those? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, look, um, FBT, I always um, make the point, it's a very, very compliance heavy tax. Um, not that much tax is collected, but it's very compliance heavy. Um, there is a lot of record keeping that's needed and a lot that's specifically just needed for FBT purposes. So one of the proposals in last year's federal budget was to um, uh, allow businesses to just use their normal record keeping that they would keep for income tax purposes to support their FBT provision. Um, as far as I can recall, I don't think it's gone any further than just a budget announcement. So let's wait and see. I'm sure that's a priority, get that, that particular provision through Parliament before the calling of a federal election. The top of the list. <laughs> yes, well, it's, um, it's the 7th of March today. We're going to have another two days, I think, of the Senate sitting and three days of the House of Reps sitting. So I, we haven't seen draft legislation, so I don't, not, don't like your chances there, Lee. Sorry to I say. I don't think so. <laughs> And I just want to note with fringe benefits tax, there are some very specific rules that apply, for example, to local government, not-for-profits, and also uh, other kind of, you know, charities, unions, and other kinds of exempt entities as well. And I don't know if anyone's heard of Tax Ed, but Tax Ed are one of Tax Banter's colleagues, and they deliver a fantastic training for people in that local government and not-for-profit area. So if you tend to have a lot of not-for-profit clients, for example, that are 
delving into fringe benefits tax issues, um, particularly because there are some incentives there, then I highly recommend you do a search for Tax Ed FBT Roadshow to find out more about their training. And of course, Tax Panda provides training as well and, and FBT update in March every year. So just some last comments um, from you, Mike. Any last comments, anything that you think our, our listening base really needs to know about fringe benefits? Um, just be really careful, um, particularly if you're only really looking at it once a year, just make sure you've kind of had a bit of a look at what might have changed over the last year or so, especially, for example, around that travel area. Um, yeah, there, there's quite a bit that you, know, you might just need to get your head around. Um, but I would just wish people good luck. I do not like this part <laughs> of the tax system very much at all. I can't name anyone <laughs> who really loves dealing with FBT. Oh. I'm sure they're out there somewhere, but actually, yeah, who knows? You do, Anne. Like I'm sure you do, don't you? Oh, I think yeah. so. The listeners can't see this, I but used to. put a hand up to say she loves FBT. You used to. You've been burnt. Oh, yeah. I used to. They took all the fun out of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always remind clients that um, you, you probably, because I sort of raised the question, who's paid FBT this year? And, you know, you barely get anyone saying yes, maybe one or two clients. And that's probably the right answer. But I just think you want the right answer because you've thought about it, not because you've accidentally stumbled upon the right answer. So get your paperwork in place. Mm. Great. Thank you so much for that. I, I think we'll end it there. This has been a really um, interesting episode of Tax Yak. I just really want to thank my colleagues, Matthew Carruthers at the Knowledge Shop and Leanne Hayes from Tax Banter for your very deep knowledge of fringe benefits tax. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. It's been good fun. Thank you. So thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or speakers. You can also contact the TaxYak team on email at podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and write a review for the show wherever you are. It will help to improve the profile of the show and we would love to hear your thoughts. We look forward to you joining us next time. Bye.